Good morning, everybody. There we go, get situated. Many of y'all know I'm a type 1 diabetic, and I'm feeling amped this morning, which is either uh, because I'm excited about this text or my blood sugar wants to go low, so I've got my Gatorade. Turn this around, we'll get maybe some monetization. There you go. Uh, so I've, that's why I've got a Gatorade. So if you see me sipping on that, I'm, uh, pray for me. Anyways, it's good to see all of y'all. Uh, what a doozy this text is. Uh, if you haven't turned there already, grab your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 15, verses 21 through 31, which is a very weird passage, right? Uh, to summarize it, there's this lady uh, who asked Jesus for help, okay, nothing weird there, because her daughter is oppressed by a demon, and so out of her desperation, she cries out to him for help, which seems pretty reasonable, nothing too crazy, but Jesus starts off by giving her the silent treatment, doesn't say a word to her. Then, when he finally does speak to her, he calls her a dog, and he basically says the whole time, I'm not gonna help you. So he says throughout the whole text, she just keeps pushing him, she won't let him leave her alone, and it works. He ends up healing her daughter, and in fact, the whole focus of this passage is this crescendo where Jesus says to this woman, oh woman, great is your faith. So remember how many times he's told his own disciples, oh, you of little faith. And yet he tells this Canaanite woman, how great is your faith, lady I called a dog. So that's still summarizing here. Then we'll see sort of the weirdest part for me at the very end. After this whole exchange with this lady, Jesus goes and heals a bunch of other people on a mountain. And he doesn't call them dogs. He just heals them. There's no exchange or anything. He just heals all of their diseases. That's how we ended that passage, like it's nothing. So that's our weird passage for today because the Bible's fun. But obviously the focal point of this text is where Jesus says this woman has great faith. And that should, that should perk our ears up, I mean, like dogs, yeah? Uh, when Jesus says this lady has great faith, he's telling us that this is what it looks like to have great faith. That's what he's telling us. This is how it looks to have great faith and you ought to emulate her. Be like this lady. And so I believe we have a lot to learn from her today. Unsurprisingly, three things, per the usual with me, three things to learn from this woman. Uh, and I said, if this woman has great faith, how might we have great faith? If this woman has great faith, like Jesus says she does, how might we have great faith? First, by depending on Jesus' mercy, by being persistent through adversity, and third, having confidence that Jesus will sustain us. Having confidence that Jesus will sustain us. So that's what we're going to see today. Though this text is a bit of a mess, honestly, I think this has the potential to be particularly an encouraging passage for us, especially those of us who find ourselves in seasons where we are crying out to God, and yet it feels like he's giving us the silent treatment. If that's you, I think this sermon's for you. And I also think this is an unexpectedly convicting passage. This woman is so different from us. Even if, as we were reading through it, you might have said, like, I would, never, I would never act like that. I would never follow someone around crying out to him. She's so different from us, yet Jesus wants us to emulate her faith. It's very convicting. 
So I just hope this text and this sermon encourages us this morning and points our attention off of ourselves toward our Savior, but that won't happen unless God is merciful to us this morning. So let's pray, and then we'll open our text. Father, we thank you that you're good. Uh, We thank you for your abundant mercy shown through your Son. I pray now that we would be edified as a church, we would be encouraged, and uh, yeah, our focus would be off of ourselves. Instead, we would come to Jesus for what we need. Um, we would ask you and know that you're a good father who loves to give gifts to his children. Uh, that if we ask for bread, you're not going to give us a snake. Uh, as Jesus said earlier in Matthew 7, I pray that we would believe that, we would trust you, and trust you to sustain us. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. So let's begin. Matthew 15, verse 21 says, And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. So, quick recap. For all of Matthew chapter 15 so far, Jesus has been dealing with arrogant, self-righteous Pharisees. He's been debating with them. And that's coming off of previous chapters where first, you know, Jesus' friend, John the Baptist, was executed, and Jesus was rejected by the Jewish leaders in his hometown of Nazareth, and also a bunch of other arrogant, self-righteous Pharisees argued with him and conspired to kill him, calling him a blasphemer and a Sabbath breaker, really anything they can say to get him stoned to death. That's been the past few weeks for Jesus. And so he's getting out of there. It says he withdrew. Mark's gospel actually gives a little more details and says that Jesus withdrew and did not want anyone to know where he was. So he went away from there, gets away to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And now that district may not mean anything to us, but Tyre and Sidon would definitely stand out and even raise some red flags to the original primarily Jewish audience reading the book of Matthew. Because the district of Tyre and Sidon was an explicitly Gentile territory. And here's why that matters. In the eyes of the Pharisees that Jesus was debating with last week, if you can remember, or really in the eyes of any first century Jew, certainly the eyes of Jesus' disciples, to enter a Gentile territory was to enter a land filled with sin, impurity, defilement, and distance from God. And so when Matthew writes that Jesus withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon, to a Jewish audience, you'd probably hear a few gasps in the crowd. Because it meant that Jesus was willingly entering a land of defilement. But Jesus knows this, and his withdrawal to the Gentile area isn't just out of convenience or or desperation to get away from the Pharisees. No, this move is very intentional. Because Jesus is challenging and unraveling the way that the Pharisees, his disciples, and his typical audience thought about defilement. Last week he said, defilement isn't something that comes from the food you eat or from your bloodline or from external factors. Rather, it's not the sin out there that makes you defiled. Sin out there, outside of yourself, isn't the problem. Rather, a person's defiled by the sin in their own heart. The evil that comes out of their own mouths is what defiles them. So that's what we saw in our text last week, and Jesus is just continuing that argument today. But whereas Last week, he used the Pharisees as this case study for what it looks like to be defiled. He he called them hypocrites. He showed us this is what defilement looks like. These guys, these holy men of Israel, which isn't what anyone expected. These, These holy men of Israel have evil and cursing coming out of their mouths, so don't be like them. And now today, he's entering a defiled region. 
And he leaves the holy land of Israel and he finds this Canaanite woman for his case study, for what it looks like to have speech and actions that are undefiled. He says, this is what holiness looks like, this Canaanite, and yet that's not what anyone expected. She has this humility pouring out of her mouth, so be like her. And so he's sort of turning the typical understanding of defilement on its head as he withdraws to this land of Tyre and Sidon. Which brings us to verse 22. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David, my daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. And so here we meet the hero of our story. This, this Gentile woman, Matthew actually calls her a Canaanite, which is a way of saying the Gentilest of Gentiles, right? The Canaanites were these legendary enemies of Israel. So she's not just your standard Roman or Gentile like that. She's an icky, defiled, super Gentile, only eats bacon all the time. Matthew says, behold, a Canaanite woman from this region of defilement came out, but she didn't act like a defiled super Gentile. Instead, she's practically quoting Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. She calls Jesus the son of David, the promised Messiah of Israel. And we've talked about this title before, but just for review, the prophets in the Old Testament look forward to a day where an offspring of King David, a son of David, would come and he would free Israel from their enemies and he would rule with with justice and righteousness and he would rule not just over Israel, but he would rule even over the pagan nations, the Gentiles, and even, Lord forbid, the Canaanites. And these people would no longer worship their idols. They would no longer submit to demons or the prince of the power of the air, but instead they would come and worship at the feet of the God of Israel and find healing in him. And so when she calls him the son of David, there's a lot of weight packed into that title. And this woman is relying on every bit of that weight for her request. She says, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. Have mercy, free my daughter from this demon. Now, we've, we've covered demon possession in other sermons. I'm not going to be able to sufficiently answer all of your questions. People always have demon questions, you know. So, but that's what going to coffee's for. So just if you're like, oh, I wish he talked more about demons. Great, let's have coffee, and we'll talk about all the demons you want. But we'll see later in chapter 17 of Matthew, there's another story about demonic oppression. There's this man whose son is severely oppressed by a demon. And in this particular case, when, when someone, for example, is like cooking food over a fire, this demon-oppressed boy, he'll lose consciousness and be thrown into the fire, burning himself. And also, whenever he's near a body of water, like a river or maybe even a well, it doesn't say specifically, but when he's near water, he'll lose consciousness, be thrown into the water, almost drowning. It's terrible. So though we don't know the specifics of this Canaanite woman's daughter, we can imagine that if it's anything like the boy falling to the fire or water or some of the other demon-oppressed people that we've already seen in Matthew, like if you remember the guys that were in such bad shape, they lived alone, no one would go near them, and they lived in a graveyard. So if when this woman says, my daughter is severely oppressed, if it's anything like these other cases, we can imagine this mother's life is a wreck. 
Her life would be consumed with trying to love and care for her daughter, and it's probably not a very rewarding experience. Awful, that's probably what it's like. And so she comes out of her desperation to the son of David, this king of the nations, and asks him for help. Now, I do want to come back to something before we move forward. I just want us to notice the first words out of her mouth are, have mercy on me, O Lord. The first words out of her mouth and the first thing she asked for isn't for her daughter to be healed. It's for mercy. We shouldn't skip over that. She asked for mercy, meaning deal with me, O Lord, in a way that I don't deserve, that I'm in no way entitled for you to deal with me. Because she knows that a Jewish rabbi would have nothing to do with her. A Canaanite woman from the region of Tyre and Sidon with a demon-oppressed daughter, that's like defilement bingo. And she knows it. She knows she's defiled. She, she knows she's unworthy of his attention. And so she actually draws attention to that reality. She makes it clear that the entire interaction she's hoping to have with Jesus is completely dependent upon his mercy. And so the first thing we learn from this woman with great faith, if this woman has great faith, how might we have great faith? Depending on Jesus's mercy. Depending on Jesus's mercy. See, she understands something that the Pharisees certainly didn't, what Jesus' disciples often didn't, and what you and I so often don't understand, at least we don't live like it, and that's this, that no one comes to Jesus worthy of him. Meaning we're all desperate for mercy. And this woman understands that. And so the first thing out of her mouth is this humble request for mercy. And so the question to ask yourself this morning is, do you depend on mercy in the same way? In the midst of your unworthiness, do you depend on mercy in the same way? In the midst of your need for mercy, when you sin, where do you go to deal with it? Well, don't just say Jesus. I go to Jesus. He's my Savior. Because you know that's the right answer. Many of us don't go to Jesus with our sin. We go to Jesus like an operating baseline, something that's always there in the background. Yes, anything I do, Jesus forgives. That's great. And you know that's actually true for those who are in Christ, but I'm not talking about some sort of passive dependence on Jesus' mercy. Depending on Jesus' mercy is not a passive in the background thing. It's an active exercise. You have to train yourself to depend on Jesus' mercy. It's painful. It's not instinctual. It's often counterintuitive. When you've, for example, broken trust with someone who's close to you, maybe you've sinned against them, and it's hard for them to trust you. Imagine that you then sin against them again in the exact same way. In that moment, what does it look like to depend on Jesus' mercy to deal with your sin? Hopefully, it would look like you confessing that sin again to that person, admitting your fault once again, asking for their forgiveness once again. And will your sin hurt that person? Probably. Will it make it, it, it even harder for them to trust you? Yes, probably. But who do you want to depend on to deal with your sin in that moment? Jesus? or a facade of trust that you can create and you can build with that person by not being honest about your sin. 
So you see, it could be painful. Depending on the mercy of Jesus is often difficult. It takes bravery. It takes bravery in your small group not to just go around the circle and talk about external problems as if that's what's defiling your life. Rather than holding up your own sin, what comes from within you, holding that up, your own problems that are defiling your own life. Readily confessing your sin. That's what depending on mercy looks like. Readily confessing that sin. If you have no sin to confess, well then you're undefiled and you don't need mercy. But we all know we do have sin So then if you're slow to confess it, it's only because you're busy trying to depend on something other than Jesus' mercy to deal with your sin. So ask yourself, how do you deal with your sin? Who or what do you depend on? This This woman asks Jesus for mercy and she does it loudly, publicly for others to hear. I'm not saying you need to go yelling your sins in the street, but if you're not talking about your sins with anyone, then it's not mercy that you're depending on to deal with your sin. If nobody knows about your sin and you're never admitting any guilt, you're never having to confess sin, you're never having to apologize and admit that you're wrong, that you're a bad, wicked person, you never have to ask others for mercy, then it's definitely not Jesus' mercy that you're depending on. Instead, you're depending on your good reputation to deal with that sin, which doesn't get anyone very far, by the way. You know, just all of these like church leaders and all of these scandals and unqualified pastors you hear about like basically every day, that's what, depending on a good reputation to deal with your sin, will earn you over time. Only Jesus' mercy can deal with your sin, so don't try to hide it, conceal it. Instead, cry out for mercy. That's the first thing out of this lady's mouth. (laughs) Ask yourself, how often is a cry for mercy the first thing out of your mouth? What comes out first? If this woman has great faith, how might we have great faith? By depending on Jesus's mercy. We got to keep moving. So she cries out. She tells Jesus her daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. And here's where it gets fun. I don't know. He did not answer her a word, verse 23 says. His disciples came and begged him. She's not the only one begging Jesus. They beg him, send her away, for she's crying out after us. And he answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. It's like, whoa, what's gotten into Jesus, right? Didn't answer her a word, seriously? A desperate woman who wants her daughter to be freed from a demon and Jesus says nothing? This isn't the Jesus that we expect. Now, to be fair, sure, yes, this isn't the Jesus that we expect, but I bet for some of you, if you're honest, and again, not giving the the right Christian churchy answer, Jesus is everything. If you're honest, I bet for some of you that you know this Jesus very well. This is exactly the Jesus you've come to expect because this story is very much in line with how you feel your experience with Jesus has been. Where in times of need, in desperation, you've cried out, help me, Lord. And in response, you've heard nothing. 
and your suffering remains, you're still in the hard situation, your circumstances don't change. You cry out, you know, Lord, heal this sickness. Or Lord, take away this physical pain. Lord, save my kid. Or Lord, find me a job. Or Lord, heal and restore this relationship. Lord, free me from this addiction. Lord, free me from my enemies. Lord, help me, please. And you get nothing. Just silence. (laughs) Sometimes even things get worse. Just to add insult to injury. If you've ever been in a season like this, or maybe you're even in that season right now, Stick with me in these next few verses. Pay special attention to how this woman handles the silence. She does something very few of us do when our prayers produce nothing but silence. says, he did not answer her a word, and his disciples came and begged him, saying, send her away, for she's crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. The disciples get annoyed with this lady. And they ask Jesus to just heal her daughter. Just give her what she's asking for. Just send her away. That's what they mean. Just heal her so we don't have to keep listening to this. We can have some peace. And Jesus answers them. And it seems like somehow she overheard this answer. He says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now we'll cover what exactly that means in a moment. But at least you can can deduce that she's not of the house of Israel, since she is a Canaanite Gentile. And so he's basically telling the disciples, no, I'm not going to send her away with what she's asking for because she's not of the house of Israel. So silence. And then she hears what seems to be a pretty, pretty solid no. But then look at what she does. She came and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. Now, at this point, No one would blame her for saying, this guy seems like a a bit of a dead end. You know, like, what's the use? He ignored me. He obviously has a clear reason for why he's not helping me. So what's the use? This is a waste of time. Just pack it up, go home. No one would blame her. But what does she do instead? She persists. She presses in. She won't leave Jesus alone. She won't let Jesus leave her alone. She literally blocks his path, kneels down right in front of him so that she's no longer, notice she's not crying loudly anymore to make up that distance between her and Jesus. Now she's close enough that she can say, Lord, help me. And so we see our second point today. If this woman has great faith, how might we have great faith? Yes, depending on Jesus' mercy and being persistent through adversity. Being persistent through adversity. This lady is persistent. Because her focus is on who she's talking to rather than the circumstances around the conversation. And I think so often when we're facing something difficult and we go to God in prayer, we tend to get caught up in our circumstances. At least that's what, what I do. I tend to get caught up in my circumstances and I'm always trying to figure out, you know, why is God have me in this situation? Why does he have me facing something difficult? It must be for a reason. And so I don't ask for any help from God because I figure that's not why he has me in the situation. So asking for help would be like disloyal to the cause, to ask him to free me from it. 
But when we read our Bibles, Jesus speaks often of God being our loving Father, who we ought to feel the freedom to ask anything, even freedom from the difficult circumstances that he and his sovereignty has prepared for us to walk through. Especially when we're losing heart and we feel that prayer is of no use. And there's several passages we could turn to. I think Matthew 7 is particularly relevant, but for the sake of time, I'm going to read my favorite from Luke. Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 8. And he told them, being Jesus, a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Well, that seems relevant. He said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man, meaning he's unrighteous, he's evil. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while, he refused, but afterward, he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, though I'm an evil person, I will give her, uh, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I'll give her justice. So she won't beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, he tells this strange story about a persistent widow. And then Jesus says, hear what the unrighteous judge says. This evil judge. If this judge is evil, says, will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? So notice the whole point of this parable is to describe what faith looks like. And Jesus says faith looks like crying out day and night, even when it feels unproductive, even when there's silence. Preaching from this same passage, the fourth century Pastor and theologian John Chrysostom says, what then did the woman do after she heard Jesus basically say, she's not of the house of Israel? He says, what did she do after she heard this? Was she silent and did she desist or did she relax her earnestness? By no means, but she was the more persistent. But it is not so with us. Rather, when we fail to obtain, we desist. Whereas it ought to make us the more urgent so when there is silence, don't think that this means your prayers are useless. Jesus says, instead, we ought to pray all the more, knowing that God hears us and delights to give good gifts to those who ask for them. That's what he says in Matthew 7. Persisting through this kind of adversity is, is similar to, for example, confessing sin, even when it's hard, even when it feels unproductive, like it's actually going to make your situation worse. But notice it's a matter of dependence. It's hard to persist in prayer because it means depending on God and not depending on yourself to control the outcome. It's, it's hard to entrust yourself and your life to God in prayer because it involves you letting go of your control and insisting and persisting and asking that God do something. No good comes from depending on yourself. What power do you have against injustice or, or sickness or these trials that you face? We tend to convince ourselves that we have much power, which is why we don't pray and why we desist so early when it feels like our prayers are useless. But this is the power you have, a mighty God who hears the cries of his people. 
So persist in prayer like this woman. See how God uses hard seasons to, to strengthen your dependence on him and shows your own scheming and strategies to be exactly what they are, weak attempts to control your world. What good is it to get control of your world at the cost of having no need or really no dependence on Jesus? We have to keep moving. Verse 24, again. Jesus answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. To the dogs. She said, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. There's a lot going on there. Here's basically what Jesus is saying. You're a Gentile, a.k.a. not of the house of Israel. There's, that means you're outside of my purview. Jesus is making a theological argument about the order of redemption laid out in the Old Testament, the order of redemption and the advancement of God's kingdom as it was promised by the prophets. Think of it like concentric circles. When you read your Old Testament, they point forward to the Messiah, the son of David coming and him providing healing and salvation that would be given to Israel, to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles. Literally, the nations that shared a border with Israel. Basically, Israel would would flourish under the rule of the Messiah, and the Gentiles would take notice and want to be under his authority as well, as they all would come and worship the God of Israel. And that's what the prophets said, and they were talking about Jesus. And so he's telling this lady, hey, do you see Israel flourishing under their Messiah yet? Notice I'm leaving Israel to come here because they are not flourishing. Do you see Israel flourishing yet under the Messiah? You don't? Yeah, because I'm not done yet. I'm still trying to find lost sheep in the house of Israel. I'm still fulfilling prophecy. I'm still obeying the law perfectly. I still have to pay for the penalty of sin and conquer death. Jesus is like, I've got a lot going on right now, lady. But to give you the flourishing and the healing and the blessing that I was sent to give Israel, that would be skipping over the rightful recipients of this healing. It would be skipping over the Jews. To give it to you, a Canaanite woman, that wouldn't be right. It'd be out of turn. And yes, he doesn't call her a Canaanite. He calls her a dog. Why? Why is he doing all this? Is he just trying to insult her? Why does he call her a dog? Is that some sort of slur? Well, actually, you'll be happy to know it's not. (laughs) Though it does sound like it, it's, it's not actually as offensive as it appears. There are two words in Greek for dogs, okay? One describes the sort of mangy beasts that lived on the outskirts of a town that were filthy, ate garbage, just wild dogs, all right? And Jews often called Gentiles wild dogs, That was indeed a slur, which is why that's not what Jesus says. That's not the word for dogs Jesus used here. Instead, Jesus used the other word for dogs, which refers to precious little house pets, like a family dog. The word's diminutive, like my, you know, sweet little puppy. Okay, that's the word for dog Jesus uses. It's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the little puppies, okay? So Jesus paints this vivid picture for us 
where there's this family gathered around a table, around their dinner table, and the children are waiting to receive their bread, receive their food. And for those of you in the room that have dogs, you want to spend money on that, uh, you can imagine feeding your family and feeding your kids until they've eaten all that they can. And then imagine you have some leftovers, and that's what everybody, that's like somehow the justification for the cost. Well, I never have to sweep. You know, they say things like that. I'm like, gross. Now I'm definitely not coming to your house. Clean your floors. Uh, But once you have these leftovers, you can just kind of brush them off the table, and you can give that little bit that's left over to your dog. You know, it feels wrong to, you know, throw it away. You want to do something with it. And so you give a little bit of food to your sweet little puppy, Right? But what would be out of place and what be, would be wrong would be instead of waiting until your family was full and then giving the leftovers to your dog, instead having everything on the plates and be like, everybody wait to eat and then grabbing their plates and scraping the food of your children off into the dog's bowl and then waiting until your dog was finished to give the kids whatever was left over. That's the vivid picture that Jesus gives. And again, his point is to say, What the Old Testament says, the children of the house of Israel must receive the blessings of the Messiah first. And then it'll be the Gentiles, the little puppies within the household of faith. Then they can receive those blessings. That's the argument Jesus is making. But her response is incredible. She said, so he says, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And she said, yes, Lord, Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. She agrees with Jesus. Yes, Lord, she says. She has the humility to recognize her place in the story of redemption. She's not offended. She says, yes, Lord, I'm a dog. I'm not a child of the house of Israel. How many of us would have this kind of humility? What Jesus says to her, it's not mean or wrong. He's speaking the truth. You're not in the covenant. You don't get covenant blessings. You're not worthy. And she says, yes, Lord, I'm not. Remember, the Pharisees, they went around saying, we are worthy. And these people over here are not. This lady says, I'm not worthy. I'm a dog. Nothing in me makes me qualified to eat the bread of the kingdom. Yes, Lord. That is incredible humility. I could spend all day, I could have preached a whole sermon just on this. Uh, Y'all got another hour? I'm just kidding. No, no, thank you. (laughs) But she recognizes that no one comes to Jesus worthy of him. We're all desperate for his mercy. And the sooner we lean into the truth that we are unworthy sinners, dogs, not children, That's what builds up a church. That's what changes a community for the better. That's what gets the gospel going outside of these walls. Once we we lean into the truth that we are unworthy sinners in need of mercy. I mean, here at Parkway, we got a lot going on. Half of our building has been closed due to a flood since Christmas. And in the fall before that, we lost about half of our members in a church split. And our finances are a wreck as a result. But what we need more than money in the bank 
more than people in the seats and square footage in our building. It's the humility to lean into the truth of who we are, where we struggle, and are unworthy, and dependence on Jesus to, to sustain us despite our unworthiness. That's what this woman's response shows. She leans into her unworthiness, leans into her weakness, and trusts Jesus' sustenance. She says, yes, Lord, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Yes, I'm unworthy. Yes, I'm unqualified. But I'm happy to be a dog in your house. Let me have the crumbs, the small blessings that are so small, so humble, so low, that the children won't even bother eating them. I'll take the least of your kingdom, knowing it's the same bread. Any morsel from your table will sustain me more than I could find depending on any other savior. Yes, Lord, I'm a dog, I'm a house pet, but to be a house pet in the house of Israel under your care is more than enough for me. So humble. This brings us to our final point today. If this woman has great faith, how might we have great faith? By depending on Jesus' mercy, being persistent through adversity and having confidence that Jesus will sustain us. No one else. That Jesus will sustain us. That he's what we need. She's confident that Jesus will sustain her. Again, you'll notice this is all about dependence. She's depending on Jesus for mercy. She's persistent as she's depending on Jesus to give her what she needs. And she's confident that by depending on Christ alone, rather than her own strength or her own schemes, he will indeed sustain her life with all that she needs. Be it with bread or with crumbs. Whatever he gives her, that's what's going to sustain her. And she knows it. Do you believe that Jesus is enough to sustain you? No one else will sustain you like Jesus. No reputation, no amount of cash, no amount of respect that people can give you, no political candidate as we get into this crazy season. Where do you place your confidence for sustenance? Or to say it this way, what bread are you going to to sustain your life? What's feeding you? To feed on the gospel, especially in times of trial, feels more like crumbs than bread. It does. You won't feel lifted up. You won't feel better than anyone. You won't feel in control. But again, what good is it to get control of your world at the cost of having no need and no dependence on Jesus? It's not worth the cost. There's so much more we could say. We got a lot of text. Let's finish this sermon. Verse 28. Then Jesus answered her. This is this crescendo. Oh, woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. Her daughter was healed instantly. Jesus gave her the crumbs. She went away rejoicing, sustained by his mercy. How, why did you, why, why was that so hard, Jesus? Was it so hard? Why couldn't you just said that from the start? If you were going to do it all along, why did he push her away so much? Here's why. He was testing her faith. 
to show others like us and herself that her dependence was truly on him. Had he simply granted her request, then we wouldn't know the richness of her faith like we do now, and that should encourage us. Because if you're in a season where Jesus is silent, take heart that it doesn't mean he's absent. Though he may be silent, he's never absent. Rather, he's sustaining you. He's drawing out from you a humble, persistent, independent faith. He's removing idols from your heart as you more and more depend on him, formed and strengthened by the very trial you find yourself going through. I love what Charles Spurgeon says in regard to this woman, a sermon he preached in 1876. Read the whole sermon. It's better than this sermon. It's amazing. He says, the Lord Jesus was charmed with the fair jewel of this woman's faith and watching it and delighting in it. He resolved to turn it round and set it in other lights that the various facets of this priceless diamond might each one flash its brilliance and delight Christ's soul. Therefore, he tried her faith by his silence and by his discouraging replies that he might see its strength. But he was all the while delighting in it and secretly sustaining it. And when he had sufficiently tried it, he brought it forth as gold. He set it, set his royal mark upon it with these memorable words, O woman, great is your faith. In other words, well done, good and faithful servant. Though Jesus feels silent, he's never absent. Rather, he's drawing out of you the radiant brilliance of dependence that without such trial, you'd have no interest in. Finally, the last section to close. Verses 29 through 31 says, Jesus went on from there, from this interaction, and he walked beside the Sea of Galilee, and he went up the mountain and sat down there. And great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others, and they put him at his feet, and he healed them. So that the crowd marveled, I think is a better translation. They wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. On the heels of this encounter with this woman, Jesus goes to the top of a mountain, and he lets the crumbs fall from the table. The crumbs the Pharisees rejected. These people being healed are Gentiles. That's why Matthew writes, they glorified the God of Israel. If they were were Jews, he would have just said God. He wants you to know these Gentiles were glorifying the God of Israel. And I love the language here is very similar to the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus walked in Israel beside the Sea of Galilee. He went up on a mountain. He sat down. And the people came to him, and he taught them, and he healed many, and they marveled and glorified God. Except this time it's Gentiles. And so his argument regarding what defiles a person here in these verses is such a strong, it's concluded. Obviously, seeing the faith of these Gentiles, it unravels the Pharisees' argument. The dirt on your hands or eating bacon, what goes into your mouth is what defiles you. Rather, it's what comes out of your mouth that defiles you. This is a clear demonstration that out of the mouths of Jewish Pharisees came cursing and out of the mouths of defiled Gentiles came praise to the God of Israel. This is Matthew's way of demonstrating the importance of considering your own heart 
considering what's coming out of your mouth, considering where you rest all of your dependence to, to deal with your defilement. And so that's what I want us to do this morning as we, as we consider our own hearts, as we take communion, we remember the mercy of God. So let's pray and prepare for communion. God, we thank you that you are merciful. Merciful Father, you sent your son. I thank you for uh, the grace that we see in Christ. I pray that we would lean into that grace, avoiding uh, confession of sin, avoiding talking about our weakness is no way to grab hold of all the mercy that Christ offers. So I pray that you would make us brave. You'd make us like this woman to trust you, trust you with our lives, trust you with our reputations, trust you with our sense of our own honor or the self-respect we think is due to us. Pray that we would throw that all down at your feet. We would worship you. We would depend on you for mercy. Amen.